again. Picture yourself sitting in a park, sitting at a park, and you're watching a young family navigating the playground, right? Going between all of the play sets, the pieces of equipment. As you watch, you see a child around three to four years of age. You see that she's enjoying herself on all of the equipment, right? The, the, the little merry-go-round, the slides, the swings, the monkey bars. As she tries to reach the monkey bars, she looks to dad, who's right by her, for the lift she needs. As she hesitates to come off of an elevated platform, she looks to mom for help coming down. And when she sufficiently worn herself out with all the play, she looks to her big brother to help her reach that just out of reached drinking fountain. As her small, spent body is carried to the car by her dad, you try to hold on to what you've just witnessed. So, keeping that mental picture in mind of the playground and the little girl playing with her family, keeping that in mind, look at Mark chapter 10 with me this morning. We're looking together verses 13 through 16. 13 through 16. Listen and try to visualize as Mark paints the scene for us here, beginning in verse 13. And they, that is the people in the crowd, the crowds that often follow Jesus, they were bringing children to Him, to Jesus, that He might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, when He saw what was happening, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them, the children, in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Isn't that great? Have that in your mind? See that? Can you see that scene unfolding? So first of all, as we, as we step away from this scene, first of all, let's make sure we understand what was happening here. As Jesus was just doing the same thing that he's been doing ever since chapter 1. Things like preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons. As Jesus is continuing his public ministry, we read in verse 13 that parents, parents and were bringing their children to him that he might what? That he might touch them. No, 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 wait a minute. Were these sick children in need of healing? Those seem to be the ones that Jesus was touching with that healing touch earlier in the gospel. No, I don't, I don't think these are sick children. I believe what these parents were seeking is the very thing that Jesus gives them right there at the very end of the account in verse 16. They simply wanted Jesus Christ to bless their children. They wanted Him to bless their children. Parents, that's a good desire, isn't it? That's a right desire to want Jesus Christ to bless your children. Now, in contrast to these parents, 
Here's the parents <laughs> over here. Over here on this side, as these parents want to get their kids close to Jesus, surprisingly, we read that Jesus' own disciples want to do the exact opposite. <laughs> they want to do the opposite. They wanted to keep these kids away from Jesus. To ask why. Why are they wanting to keep the, these kids away from Jesus? Well, in all likelihood, they thought that Jesus had better things to do than kiss babies and indulge needy parents. Like, this is a waste of his time. I don't think the issue here, as is often said, is their disdain for children. If you read the material, in the first century, in Jewish culture, children were treasured. They were valuable. They weren't looked down upon as, as somehow, in, like, totally, totally, um, you know, uh, anno- just annoyances. No, I think that's not the issue here. What is far more likely in this situation, what's taking place, I think is that these disciples were, at this point, focused intently on ideas of power and influence connected to Jesus the Messiah. If you just look at their words all throughout chapters 8 through 10, that's all they're really fixated on is like, yeah, we're the disciples and we're with Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. We're, we're right here with him. We're doing, you know, we're his guys. We're with Jesus. So they've got this clearly in mind. If Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, was going to rule as the king, then spending time with children, powerless, insignificant children, that must have seemed like a complete waste of time in terms of those who wanted to be Jesus' handlers for His Messiahship, to promote His Messiahship. So they see this as just a distraction. But as we just saw in this passage, Jesus definitely does not share their perspective, does He? Not at all. He does not share their perspective. In fact, this story here is yet another story, one of many in Mark's Gospel, in which Jesus is trying to break them of that perspective. He's always trying to correct them and get them reoriented to the truth. He's doing that here. So it's important that we focus, it's important we focus on the response of Jesus recorded in verses 14 and 15. That's the center, literally, and that's the center of this passage in terms of its purpose. As we do that, looking at verses 14 and 15, I think you'll see that though this passage is wonderfully encouraging for both parents and children, the main focus here is really on those who are children of God. So parents, as you read this passage about Jesus having the children come to Him, then it should be an encouragement to you. Children, as you hear about this, kids, as you hear about this, you should be encouraged that if Jesus were here right now in the flesh, He would want you to come to Him. He would pick you up. He would give you a hug and He would bless you. Right? And there would be nothing to keep you away from Jesus. He would want you right by Him, close to Him. Isn't that encouraging? Wonderfully encouraging. So even though that is something that we take away from this passage Like I said, the main focus here, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, is really on those who are children of God by His grace, through faith. 
children of God. So I say that based on the emphasis that we find here in verses 14 and 15. Look at this. Ask yourself this simple question. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Ask yourself this simple question. What does Mark reveal about why Jesus was indignant? There's your word for the week. Indignant. That's a good word. He was upset, wasn't he? He was like, Ugh. why was he indignant? Why was Jesus indignant? Why was he angry with his disciples as they tried to shoo away these little ones? Well, given what we read in this passage, I think we can say that Jesus is not upset simply because children are precious and valuable and equally image bearers of God like the rest of us. I have no doubt that's part of the equation here. Kids are precious. Kids are valuable. They're little image bearers of God. We'll notice as well that Jesus is not rebuking his disciples for their lack of hospitality. He's not saying that's not that's not how we do this, y'all. Like we welcome everybody in. He's not chastising them for their mean spiritedness. Stop being so mean to those kids. I've taught you kindness and love. He's not doing that. Uh, Moreover, he's not upset because the disciples are somehow ruining his image with a key demographic like parents. We need those parents on our side. Stop ruining my, besmirching my, my, my movement here this way. He's not doing any of those things. He tells us exactly why he's upset with his disciples. What the text is emphasizing here in God's Word is crystal clear from the key phrase that Jesus uses in both verse 14 and verse 15. Do you see the phrase those two verses have in common? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In both verses, Jesus makes a direct connection between children and the kingdom of God. Puts both of those together. In verse 14, Jesus reveals to his disciples, to everyone who is listening, that the very kingdom of God he's been proclaiming since chapter 1, all throughout his ministry, that very kingdom of God belongs to people like these children. Now don't misread this. Some misread this and say, well, the kingdom of of God belongs to children. That's not what it says. Children don't automatically have the kingdom of God and they're not automatically just welcomed into the kingdom of God as if by very nature of just them being children. Notice the language he uses here. The kingdom of God belongs to people like these children. It says to such. Do you see that verse 14? To such. That means to this kind belongs the kingdom of God. To this kind belongs the kingdom of God. And in verse 15, Jesus turns that same affirmation into kind of a prescription or we might call it a prescriptive warning. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, friends, we need to listen to that very carefully because that is a serious statement, isn't it? He's not playing games here, is he? Jesus Christ is not playing games. He is saying, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you receive it like a child. That's what, that's what he's pointing out about kids. Two such, like these. I'm pointing that out because you need to become like these. Children. So both of these verses, both of these kids and kingdom connections 
both should drive us to ask a second question. And that second question is this. What exactly is Jesus wanting to highlight or commend in these children? What is he pointing out here? You see, if you can't answer that question, then you won't know how to receive the kingdom like a child. You just won't. We have to answer that question, don't we? To know what Jesus means by receiving the kingdom like a child. What is he commending? What is he telling us about children? What is he pointing to that is so critically important about children? Now, over the years, I've routinely heard a number of suggestions about what it means uh, to receive the kingdom with a childlike attitude. Some believe Jesus is talking here about childlike innocence or childlike wonder, or childlike simplicity, or even childlike faith. The only problem is, not one of those is ever explicitly affirmed by Jesus. They're just speculation. Pure speculation. Just somebody looking at kids and going, you know, what's so cute about these kids? I just love this, this, and this about these kids. Therefore, that's what Jesus must mean. That's that's not how we do study the, the Word of God. <laughs> We need to make sure that we understand what Jesus means by this, not simply speculate. And we don't have to speculate because Jesus speaks about this. Uh, to discover what Jesus means here, we can actually just turn back one chapter. Turn back one chapter in your Bible to chapter 9, Mark 9, and look at verses 33 through 37. What makes the disciples' attitude towards these children where they're trying to shoo all these kids away, what makes it so incredibly frustrating is that Jesus has already talked to them about this very issue a chapter earlier. He already mentioned this issue to them a chapter earlier. Listen to Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And they, Jesus and His disciples, came to Capernaum and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way as we were traveling? What were you discussing? But they, his disciples, kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> of course, they don't want to say anything to Jesus, right? They're, they're behind him on the path. And they're arguing with one another about which one of them was the greatest of the disciples. Now, you, you fool, you're not the greatest disciple. I'm the greatest disciple. Let me give you five reasons why I'm the greatest disciple. Bam, 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 right? That's what they're arguing about. So, of course, they don't want to say anything to Jesus. They should have taken that as an indication and been convicted by the fact that they were talking about this. But please keep that in mind. They were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Look at Mark 9.35. And he sat down and he called the twelve. He knew this little argument needed to be addressed right away. He sat down. Come over here, you guys. He said to them, if anyone would be first, that means whoever would want to be, wants to be the greatest. See the connection? First, greatest. First, greatest. Whoever wants to be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put that child in the midst, in the middle of them. And taking, in his, taking him in his arms, he said to them, 
whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Wow. So, again, look at what Jesus is doing. He's taking this situation. He's responding to their arguments with one another about who's the greatest, what Jesus calls being the first, wanting to be the first. And he leads that conversation. His response leads to him placing a child in front of them as an object lesson. Look at this child, he says. Learn from this child. Look at this child. Now, when the Gospel of Matthew records this same episode, or one like it, the point of this object lesson is even clearer. Take a look on the screen. We'll put the text for you on the screen. This is Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Still focused on greatest. And calling to him a child, he put that child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That sounds familiar. And here's the key, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We don't have to speculate about what Jesus was commending in children. He says it right there. What he's pointing to is childlike humility. When he talks about children, he's talking about childlike humility. Again, Mark 9.35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. He must be last of all. You see, it's evident from the context, like I mentioned before, that when you read Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 especially, you just see this with the disciples. They are routinely focused on this very popular notion, popular in that day and age, that the kingdom of God, as they saw the rule, the restored rule of King David, that kingdom of Israel, that restoration, they focused on that and they thought it was all about strength and glory and independence. That's what they were fixated on. Strength, glory, and independence. But in connecting the kingdom of God to children, Jesus was connecting it to just the opposite, to weakness and insignificance and dependence. Some of our favorite words, right? Weakness, insignificance, dependence. This is what Jesus means. According to the King Himself, that is the pathway into a genuine experience of God's kingdom. Of God's reign over your lives. Don't get confused. Kingdom does have a not yet fulfillment. Christ will return to this world as King. King of kings, right? But we know that we can enter the kingdom right now All that means is we come under the loving reign of God through Jesus. He rules our life. We can seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, as uh, Matthew 6.33 says. We can live that way. Christ has made that possible. So, okay, having done our best to establish what the text means, based on the writer's intention, we now have to ask, what does this text 
mean for us? I'm not asking you what it means to you. I'm asking what does it mean for you, for me? That is, how does God want it to change me or change you now that we've heard this word? Before I share two key applications from this text, let me simply remind you, parents, of what we noted earlier. And I think this is true of parents of kids of any age, especially when they're younger, though, when you have that, uh, the influence that you have in their development. Let me remind you of this. It is good and right. It is loving and it is beautiful. It is absolutely critical that we bring our children to Jesus Christ that they might be blessed by Him. Don't take your eyes off the prize, parents. Bring your children to Jesus Christ like these parents did so that they might be blessed by Him. We know we can't do that today in the same way they did it back then, like we read here in in Mark 10. But we should have that same heart. We should see our heart reflected in these people who wanted to bring their children to Jesus that they would ble- that He would bless them. So in the present day, today we bring our kids to Jesus in two ways. Through prayer and presentation. Prayer and presentation. On our knees, we ask Him to take our kids into His arms and bless them with His healing touch. And in our... On our, with our lips and our lives, we present Jesus to them day by day by day. Parent, parents, don't stop bringing your children to Jesus. You may be tempted at times to bring them to a system of, of, more, of some kind of moral code. Bring them to Jesus. You may at times be focused on bringing them to scriptural, just scriptural knowledge so that they would be well-informed. Parents, bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. You cannot and you should not pressure them to believe. You cannot force genuine faith ever. But you can be genuinely faithful in loving your Lord every day before their watching eyes, speaking and living out gospel truth. Because they know as well as I do, as well as you do, you can't give them something you don't have. And they'll see it. And they watch you every day. And if there's that disconnect between how what you say and what you prescribe to them and how you live your life, they see it. They know it. Now, I'm not saying that to say, well, you, you have to be perfect every day. You're not going to be perfect every day. If you, if you were and that was possible, then Christ would have died in vain on the cross. But I say that as a reminder and an encouragement to you to say, hey, I need to make sure that I prioritize my relationship with Christ and my walking in faith with Him and I let Him be Lord over every area of my life. I cooperate with Him as Lord over every area of my life. I don't put things to the side and say, well, I'm, I'm like this on Sunday, but I'm different every other day of the week. Or these areas are religious, church, spiritual things. These areas, I have fun and I can kind of be like everybody else in these ways. No, they see that. It's inconsistent. They know. <laughs> they know it's, there's a disconnect there. So let them, God, use them in your life to convict you of those areas where you know the Lordship of Christ is not at work in your life. 
Allow Him to convict you in those ways. So be genuinely faithful parents and love your Lord every day before their watching eyes. They will see that and they will be impacted by that. And now, children, and what I mean is children of God, brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, don't miss the first key application from our main text this morning. It's this. We'll put it on the screen. If you've received God's kingdom with childlike humility, then also live in that kingdom with childlike humility. It's not something we leave behind. We cannot enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus said, without childlike humility, but it comes with us. No person can be a genuine Christian, a true disciple, unless he or she has extended their arms out like that little girl on the playground. Unless he or she in repentance has extended arms of faith with a sense of real helplessness. A child is not ashamed of their neediness. Unlike the ambitions of those first disciples, kids don't posture in order to project strength. They don't posture they don't, to gain glory or to claim victory. They simply accept that they are weak and they need help. And they put their arms out. They're not embarrassed. They're not ashamed. But they do that. They put their arms out. And they should do so in every case. Sadly, it's not true. But they should do so in every case knowing that there is someone there with them bigger and stronger there to help them. Through Jesus, we can have that very same reassurance. Because of the cross of Christ, because of the empty tomb of Jesus, we can be accepted now by God as our Father, the one who is bigger and stronger there with us. And we can rest secure every single day in our Father's presence and power to help needy sinners like us. But it's very easy, isn't it, to drift from that. It's very easy to drift from that childlike humility. Over time, it's very easy to believe that we've got everything under control. That we finally have things figured out. That our wisdom and our plans and our resources are more than sufficient. And so sometimes, without even knowing it, we stop depending on God. Then we stop praying. Then we stop feeding. Maybe not reading, but feeding on God's Word. Then we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we should. And we stop serving others after that. Then we start looking down on others after that. We begin to see them as a burden rather than a blessing. But to walk in that saving, childlike humility means embracing your weakness. Being okay with insignificance in the world's eyes. And cultivating a daily posture of dependence upon God. I'm guessing that even now, for many of you, God is working on your heart. 
He is speaking to you right now in this moment. And He is showing you those areas where He wants you to simply extend your arms out and say, Help me, Abba, Father. Help me. Help me. A bit of transparency about me. I can do okay with the word needy. I can kind of navigate my way around it with my own pride. But when I think of the word helpless, it scares me. I get scared by that word. And who is helpless in this world? Who is so often exploited because they are helpless in this world? Our children. We need to become like that. You don't have it all figured out. I don't either. You aren't capable. I'm not either. We are helpless. We are helpless before Him. If we cannot come to that place at some point in our lives to truly admit that, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because Christ will be embraced as Lord and Savior. He will not be embraced as Lord and Savior by those who don't truly need Him as Lord and Savior. But when you recognize and you own your moral, spiritual, eternal bankruptcy, then you throw yourself on Him. You put those arms out and you say, Help me, Abba, Father. Help me, God. Jesus didn't want the posturing from His disciples. Let's go, Jesus. We're going to Jerusalem. Right? When he started talking earlier in chapter 8 about, yeah, the Son of Man's going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected and spat upon and then I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to rise on the third day. Oh boy, they didn't, they didn't want to hear, the disciples did not want to hear that. As, and Peter spoke up, I think, for the rest of them and said, no, 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 no. He actually, it actually says he rebuked Jesus. You don't rebuke Jesus, do you? You don't rebuke Jesus, the perfect Son of God, Son of Man. He rebuked Jesus and said, No, Lord, may it never be. That's never going to happen to you. And then it says, Jesus, seeing His disciples, He heard Peter, and then He saw His disciples, and He said, Okay, this has become a public situation, and I'm going to have to respond to it publicly with force. And He looked at Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! Get behind me! the other disciples are picking their jaws up off the floor at this point, right? Like, what just happened here? That was the posturing. And that was their attitude when they saw these kids coming. Right? We're going somewhere big and powerful and strong and glorious. We don't have time for you. Think about this. Here's a second point, a second key application from this text that will make even more sense now. As you teach your kids about Jesus, parents or brothers and sisters, as we seek to point kids to Jesus, regularly consider how Jesus is using them to teach you. He wants to use them to teach you. What angered Jesus in this passage about the disciples' behavior with these parents and kids was what it revealed about the disciples' hearts. They simply did not value what Jesus wanted to emphasize, so they did not value the kingdom instruction that these children are always providing for each one of us. 
Every time you see a kid, you're getting kingdom instruction from God the Father. He is teaching you in those moments. You can choose to look away and you can choose to judge and you can choose to ignore. But Jesus is saying, you will not in my presence push these kids out because what they bring to this equation is what you desperately need to see and you desperately need to embrace and you desperately need to love. And the fact that you're trying to shoo them away right now tells me you do not. Remember the weakness and worldly insignificance and dependence we see in children. Those are the very things we should treasure most as followers of Christ. So look around. Learn from the little ones in your life. Give thanks for them. And in light of all this, may we as a church be renewed in and persevere in and grow in our ministry to these precious young lives. We know and we believe that today, this day, the voice of Jesus continues to ring out in this community. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Amen? That call continues to go out. So may we, brothers and sisters, obey His voice, both for their sake and as we've seen this morning, for our sake. Because we need them, don't we? What a powerful reminder for us that they are. Would you pray with me? Let's give thanks to God for this precious reminder that He's given us.